Well, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. It is great to see you here. Hey, I've got a special introduction today. We love to introduce you to new members in our our congregation. And today, I'm waiting for the picture to show up. I want to introduce you to Daniel Ransom Coors. The son of Jonathan and Aaron Coors was born on February 13th. I wrote 2008, but that's not correct. 2018. <laughs> he, uh, he looks young for his age. Uh, and so guys, we want to celebrate with you. We're excited uh, to share in your life and then also to share in Daniel's life. You know, as a community, um, you know, I love it that my kids get to be around uh, people who love the Lord. People of different walks and backgrounds, experiences in life, because uh, parents know, you know, we're just not enough. We're not enough to lead our kids to Christ. If they don't see it in you, and if you're not excited, my kid's not going to be excited. And I want my kid to love the Lord. And, and you know, I think all of us come in here and uh, we're human, right? Right? Okay. Let's clarify. We're human, and so that means there's, I don't know about your home, but there's some sin in my home. Um, I'm not the perfect husband. Oh, I, I know. I know, right? I'm not the perfect husband or the perfect father. And, and so there's challenges. We face challenges. As a pastor, it's not like I'm immune to the sin disease. We have that too. And so when you come to a church and you gather together as a community, you need that reinforcement. And our kids, our families need that reinforcement, not to point us just to each other, but to point us to the Lord and to Jesus Christ. And so as we gather, uh, we really have that, that opportunity to be an example for each other. Hey, let me share with you today what we're doing. We're walking uh, through the book of First Peter, and it's been a tremendous opportunity uh, kind of just to walk through uh, a book of the Bible. And as we do, to unpack that, and what Peter has said to us is that first and foremost, we are servants. That because we've been set free, we're not free just to do what we want, but rather, he says, freedom results in the presence of the right restrictions. You with me on that? Freedom is not the absence of restriction, right? I get to do what I want. Most people define freedom that way. Now, freedom is the presence of the restrictions that make you most who you're created to be. And so as servants, we are called to be free, but not to live as we want, but rather to live as servants of God. And then what he's done in chapter 3 is is simply to look at different relationships that we have, whether it's in the workplace or it's out in the community. And then last week, I know we really enjoyed it, marriage. What does it look like to live as a servant in marriage? And that's really the summary of that passage in verses 1 through 7 is that we are to live as servants. Husbands, your primary role is to be a servant to your wife. Wives, your primary role is to be a servant to your husband. And that's not just husbands and wives, that's the church. That when we're out in the community, we are called to be servants. That means that we don't put our needs ahead of the needs of others. But rather, like Jesus, who came not to be served, you know it, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, we too are called to live the life of a servant. But here's the thing, that's not bad news, that's good news. Because in verse 10, if you jump in the passage today, if you grab your Bible or you turn it on, you'll actually find a Bible. If you may be and look in front of you, there may be one. 
in the seat in front of you, or if it's a couple seats over, you can ask the guy sitting next to you. He's nice. He'll give it to you. But in verse 10, he says, it's not just about drudgery, but rather whoever would love life. You see that? Whoever would love life and see good days. God wants us to love life. He wants us to see good days. The challenge is life is filled with hardship. I mean, life is filled with challenges and suffering. And if you're going to become a servant, people are going to treat you like a servant. You with me? And that's not easy. You know, sometimes we don't like that, right? Why are they treating me like this? Well, in some ways, when you're a servant, you're going to be treated like this. Jesus wasn't treated well. He had no place to lay his head. He was accused and condemned. Some people, even his own disciples, said to him, you know, Jesus, your teaching is too hard. We're out of here. Jesus was treated as a servant. And, and we go through life and we experience hardships. And so the question we're asking today is, as servants who want to love life and live good days, imagine that's all of us, we want to experience the fullness of life. How do we go through the challenges we face? And what do we need? You know, as we go through the challenges of life, and life is hard, what do we need as we walk through those challenges? Well, that's where Peter goes to in verse 8. So if you look in chapter 3, verse 8, he's going to say, finally, which means here's the summary. Here's where we're headed. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Finally, all of you, meaning the church. What he's describing in verse 8 is not just a random throw-together actions and behaviors. He's describing the church. What he says in verse 8 is this is who we are to be collectively. That all of you have one mind. Live in sympathy. Why? Because people around you are suffering. They're going through hard times. And it could be suffering you've brought on yourself, if you know what I mean, through your own sin and bad decisions. That could be suffering. It could be suffering that someone else has brought into your life through their bad decisions. It could just simply be that life has challenges. And as we get older, maybe our bodies begin to break down. It could be that you're facing challenges in the workplace. But as we walk through life, he's saying... This is the kind of community, when you walk in with hardship and suffering, this is the kind of community that you need. And, and let me back up. It's not only the kind of community. Can I also say it's the kind of marriage you need? Finally, what he's doing, he's pulling over the theme of marriage as well and saying that in marriage as well, we need to be of one mind. We need to be sympathetic. We'll talk about what that means. We need to have a tender heart and a humble attitude that the church is to be a place of healing. Now, maybe for some of you that's not been your experience, and as a pastor I want to apologize, because I represent the church. But understand, this building is not the church. When it says that we are, we are, this is who we are to be, because the church can't be sympathetic, meaning the building. It cannot be humble, it cannot have a tender heart. It's describing when someone walks into this community and they're going through hardships, maybe their marriage is falling apart, maybe they're finding their finances are on shaky ground, they're hurting, they're broken. They need to find a community with one mind, a community that thinks the same way, meaning not about everything, because we don't need to be on the same page with politics. That's okay. We don't need to be on the same page on every single idea, but he says there are things that matter. And on those things, we need to be on the same page. Just as last week he said in marriage, you need to be of one mind. 
Now, what does that mean in marriage? It means the purpose of marriage is not just self-fulfillment. I have to remind myself of that, right? you got to remind yourself because you walk in with expectations, right? You're like me, I think. And you walk in and you have these expectations. Maybe you've had a hard day and you want to come in and, and receive comfort. And you have these expectations. But see, marriage is not just about self-fulfillment. The purpose of marriage, you ready? It's not going to excite you, but it's holiness. It's like, yay! <laughs> it's sanctification. The purpose of marriage is not just simply to get from marriage what I want. The purpose of marriage is I'm supposed to love my wife that draws her and draws out of her the woman that God has created her to be. Not the woman that I want her to be. The woman that God wants her to be. And I'm so to love, to lead, to sacrifice in a way that she becomes more and more the woman that God has redeemed and purchased her for. And then likewise, she is to respect and honor and love and sacrifice in a way for me that draws out the Jesus in me. It doesn't just draw out what she wants. Rather, it's sanctifying. Now, if you don't have that one mind, you're not going to fight well. We're not fighting well. I know it. I can just look at myself, and I know there are times I just want to win. I, I want to win the argument. But when you win the argument, you lose the war. Because the goal is to have one mind, to lead her to Christ, to lead him to Christ. And then likewise, he's saying in the church, we need to be of one mind. There's a lot of things the church gets caught up in. One of those things is politics. And I think certainly in the United States today, many people stay away from the church, and I'll tell you why, because they think, if I go to church, then I have to be a part of this political party. Or I have to adopt this kind of ideology. You know what we're doing? That when we put politics ahead of the gospel, we're keeping people not from our politics, we're keeping people from Jesus. And it's Jesus that transforms the heart. It doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican. When you lead with politics, what you're saying is Jesus is about my political party. And Jesus is not about your political party. As important as that may be to you, or two, that we are hindrances away that we are of one mind. What is one mind? Well, he said back in chapter 2 that we are, we are here to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why we are here, to proclaim the excellencies of him. Now, Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, said it this way. He said, we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present, you ready? Everyone mature in Christ. Why do we gather? That we would present everyone mature in Christ. When you gather together in a community of faith in a church, you want to gather with people that have one mind, which means to get you to Jesus. Jesus is not just our Savior for what's coming in eternity. He's your Savior for the problems you're facing today. What you need is some more Jesus. Now, what does that mean? You need His wisdom. Sometimes you need His grace. You need His compassion, His mercy. Sometimes you need to see His holiness and His justice. You need to get before the presence of God. We need to be of one mind. But second, to be sympathetic. Now, to be sympathetic is not to have pity. And sometimes we're really good at having pity because we look at someone out and say, you look at someone and think, that's terrible. Boy, that's got to be difficult. 
Sympathy is when you, you kind of remove yourself from the challenges someone's going through and you simply, sympathy just uh, simply recognize how hard their life may be. But sympathy is to enter into the experiences of others. As Paul says, we are to mourn with those who mourn and then we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. What does that look like? It's entering into the experiences of others. The perfect picture is that's what Jesus did. That's what the whole story of the gospel is, that Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, took on flesh. What he took on was sympathy. Because suddenly he knew what it was like to experience loss. He knew what it was like to see the brokenness of life. He, was, he knew what it was like to go without. He knew what it was like to be rejected and reviled against. Jesus became sympathetic. He entered into our suffering. Well, when someone walks in this community or in marriage, you've got to first enter into their suffering, which means you've got to listen, right? You've got to listen. You've got to understand what's going on in that person's life. And then he says, and then to love as brothers, which means you do not give up. Just because someone doesn't meet up with your standards, you don't give up. We are to love as brothers. Now you may say, okay, I'm supposed to be a servant. I'm supposed to have this tender heart, this sympathy. How can, how can you possibly do that? You know, that's not what I signed up for when I, I walked in the doors today. You know, I didn't walk in to, to be tender hearted towards others or to be sympathetic. I didn't, I didn't walk in to gain a new family. My family has enough problems. I don't need to bring new problems into my life. But realize what he's describing is not just how we're supposed to live. What he's describing is the life that will flow out when we believe in what God's done for us. He's he's not just saying, hey, you need to do this. What he's saying is this is who we're going to become when Jesus is at the center of things. This is the life we're going to live. Because see, as you walk in into any church, and it's okay, we'll forgive you, we all walk in as consumers. That's just our culture. It's the soup you're in. It's the water you swim in. It's the air you breathe. Consume. What can I get? Are these my kind of people? You know, is this a place where I can be impacted and feel good about myself? That, that's okay. We all walk in with those tendencies. But we walk in consumers, but we have to walk out disciples. Disciples don't consume for their best interest. Disciples follow Jesus for the interest of others. You with me? Disciples don't just come to Jesus to get my needs met, which is important, but they come and get their needs met so that they start meeting the needs of others. And that's what it means to be a family. It's we don't just simply hold each other up to our standards. We lead each other to the standards that Jesus has set. And so that's the final description he gives us. He says, finally, we need to have a tender heart. And then he says, a humble mind. Now, what does it mean to be tender-hearted and to have a humble mind? When you've got a humble mind, you start with yourself in the right place, not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Hey, look at how I live. But rather, considering where other people are coming from and meeting their needs where they are. Instead of, you know, kind of meeting people where you want them to be, because all of us have a life experience, And maybe you had great parents or terrible parents. Maybe you had this experience or that experience. Sometimes you may look at someone and say, don't they get it? What's wrong with you? But to have a tender heart and a humble spirit is to say, I don't know where this person began. 
I don't know how they woke up this morning. I don't know the life they've lived. I don't know the parents they have. I don't know the community they have come from. Rather, what I'm going to do is be sympathetic and enter into that experience. I'm going to treat them as family members, not write them off when they don't do what I want them to do, but rather have a sympathetic and tender heart that's then humble, recognizing I need to change too. And just as I may judge someone else, someone could easily likewise judge me. And so Paul captured it this way. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourselves more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Do you hear those words? The measure of faith God has assigned. Everyone is at a different measure of faith. And unless you can see that in someone, you can't judge where they are. You don't know what God's doing in their life. You don't know the challenges they face. And so what he's saying is when we walk through hardships, what we need is a community of people who are centered on the gospel. When you're going through hardships, you need a community of people centered on the gospel, which means also in marriage, you need a marriage centered on the gospel. What does it mean to center a marriage on the gospel? Well, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now, you're not your wife's Savior, but you can lead her to her Savior. In marriage relationships, in the relationships in the church, we don't start with condemnation. We start by listening, understanding hearing where somebody is at, being sympathetic, entering into the suffering of others, being tender-hearted and humble, seeing ourselves in a right position and realizing the solution isn't my advice. The solution is for that individual to draw closer to God. That's the kind of community we need as we walk through the challenges of life. But it's not enough just to have that community. Here's, here's the reality. You're a part of that community. We make, how can we do that? Well, you have to have a heart second that is really captivated by who Jesus is and what He's done. The second reality is we have to have a heart that is captivated by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because notice in verse 9, He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But then He says, On the contrary, bless. Now, this is one of the major themes of the Bible. The Bible has these, these golden threads, you may, you may say, that kind of travel throughout all of Scripture. One of those threads is blessing. You see it all the way in Genesis chapter 1. When God created us, before He spoke to us, it says He blessed us. Which means blessing isn't necessary because we're sinful. Blessing's necessary because you're a human. You were designed to hear words of affirmation and for people to speak into your life in a way that they see something great in you and they call it out. That's blessing. It's not saying, hey, this is who you are and what you've done. Rather, this is what I see in you, and this is who you are. And so God blesses us. And then sin came into the world, and God's solution was to call up this guy named Abraham and said, Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to love on you, I want to care for you, but the reason I blessed you is so that you might go and be a blessing. Not so you can have your best life now but rather you can bring the best life to others. That what God has done to you, He also wants to do through you. What God's done to you, He wants to do through you. So He's saying, simply when people revile you, when they're 
angry at you, when they mistreat you, the way He wants us to respond is not evil with evil, but rather, He says, with blessing. Now, we're going to pull that out and see what that means. And He says, hey, this is why you're alive. To this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The life that we see lived here is the life that Jesus ultimately has lived for us. The life that we see here is the life that Jesus lived for us. See, what is disobedience? In some ways, disobedience in the Christian life is mocking God. Say, I'm not going to follow according to your standards. God, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to trust in my wisdom. You know, on the cross, Jesus was mocked. He was reviled against. They cursed him. And yet, instead of returning cursing with cursing, what he did was said, Father, he sympathized. Forgive them. Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. He entered into the emotional state, the mind of those who were crucifying him. I mean, that, that seems ridiculous in some ways. How do you do that? You know, when someone is, when somebody's injured you or, or, or condemned you, certainly somebody you love is so incredibly hard not to just want to return evil with evil. And it's not saying just allow people to hurt you. It's not saying don't speak back. But what is going to change people in the end? What in the end is going to change people? It's not simply responding evil to evil, but evil with good. Because as we discovered a few weeks ago, the target isn't the one that has done evil. The target is always the evil behind what that person has done. You with me on that? It's not just simply the evil somebody has done to you. The target of the New Testament is always to realize there is an evil behind what somebody else has done. And the reason they're responding this way is they are enslaved. And how do you get unenslaved? Not through an argument. It's only one way. You need a redeemer. You need someone that's going to pull you out of darkness into light. And no matter how well you argue, no matter how well you curse against someone, no matter the evil you respond to, the only thing that is going to set someone free is a Savior. And so what he's describing here is we need to have a heart that's captivated by what Jesus has done for us. More than what others have done to us. A heart that's captivated by the grace and the goodness of God. And so again, he says in verse 9, on the contrary, blessed for this you were called, and I love this phrase, so that you might obtain a blessing. The hardest thing I think sometimes to do is just to calm yourself down, to listen, instead of just responding and reacting, to say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? And the reason he says that's so important is that we may obtain a blessing. Now, what does that mean? It means that you can't do this. What it means is you can't do this. Now, why would God give us a command we can't do? Well, because the solution isn't trying harder. The solution is to draw closer to Him. When He says, instead of returning evil with evil, but returning evil with blessing to this you recall so that you might inherit a blessing, what He's saying is you've got to realize this isn't something in our human nature we can do. It's not how we're designed in our sinfulness. But when we draw near to God, He enables us to accomplish it. The blessing is that when someone 
hurts you or, or, or wounds you, when you draw closer to God, you're being blessed. Because the evil that is done to you is not destroying you. Just as Joseph, remember the story of Joseph? You got that, you got that kind of flannel graph in, in mind? Uh, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And they were jealous because Joseph had all the attention from their father. And maybe you grew up with that. You know, your brother, your sister got all the attention and there was that animosity. Maybe it's still there. And, and there's that jealousy. Dad, mom loved them more than they loved me. Well, that was Joseph's story. He was the center of attention. Well, his brothers didn't like that. So what they do? Let's get rid of them. And God says to Joseph later on, hey, what they intended for evil, I used in your life for good. Meaning evil didn't destroy you. And evil didn't return with Joseph to evil towards his brothers. Rather, what it did was it drew Joseph to God. And the evil done to him stopped right there with him. It wasn't, he didn't allow it to, to reshape his heart. And maybe you've seen people that have gone through suffering and you've seen how it's reshaped their heart. And maybe that's where you are. Hey, I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to trust others. Well, Why? And usually the answer is because of what someone has done to me. That's not responding to evil with evil, I mean, evil with good. That's responding evil with evil. You're allowing the evil that was done to you to reshape you instead of saying, God, you know, I'm angry. I'm mad. I want to be revengeful. I want to, I want to return. I, I don't like what's going on. And then drawing closer to him, he starts to reshape the heart. And so what he's saying is we're called to this because we're called to draw closer to God. The Christian life is not about Christian doing, but being with God. And so we need, on the one hand, we need a community that is centered on the gospel. But second, we need a heart that is captivated by who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Because there's a couple things that he's going to pull out that, that hardships do for us. And if you look at verses 13 through 17... He describes a couple of things that when we go through hard times, whether it's in a marriage or it's in a church or in life, there's some benefits to those hard times that we walk through. Notice, look at this, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good or for what is good? Meaning, even the most self-centered person, if you're a benefit to them, they don't want to stop the benefit. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what, for righteous sake, you will be blessed. So even if you should suffer for doing the right thing, you'll be blessed. Now, this seems counterintuitive. Because if I do the right thing, I expect the right thing. And if I'm honoring and worshiping God, I'm trying to do the right thing, I expect good things to happen. Well, I want you to understand that's not Christianity. It's called karma. Okay? Your culture that you're swimming in is swimming in karma. If you do good, you should get good. If you do bad, you should get bad. God does not agree. We do not do good as Christians to get good. We do good because God is good. And He has been good. We do not do to get something from God. Listen, the good news of the gospel is you have God. Let's translate that to something you can understand in marriage, right? I don't do good to my wife to get something from my wife. And if she found that out, she wouldn't be real happy. Why does she want me to do good towards her? Because I love my wife. Because I value my wife. I value the relationship we have. And the reason I do good is because that's what I want for her. And likewise, in the Christian life, we don't do good just to get. And so he's saying, sometimes you're going to do the right thing and you're going to suffer. 
Because if, if our heart is centered on Jesus, remember that's the life that He lived. Just as Jesus was persecuted, so shall we. And Jesus did right, but in doing right, He didn't receive a great life. I don't know if you realize the disciples, the apostles, they didn't have a good ending. You know, they didn't have all the wealth and the success that they wanted. Actually, most of them were martyred, crucified upside down, except for John who was exiled on an island and died a lonely old man's death. Most of the disciples did not experience your best life now, but rather what they did have was they had joy. Now, see, they had joy because in life, what life did was it didn't destroy them. Rather, it made them stronger because through life, they drew closer to God. And the psalmist says, Father, in your presence is the greatest delight. The more I get God, the more I have life. So what did Jesus say? I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Life is not separate from God. Life is God. And the purpose of suffering, what he's going to say in verses 13 and 14, is to show us what we're trusting in. It's to show us what you're trusting. The purpose of hardships when we walk through them is to show us what we're trusting in. Because listen, what comes out, okay, you ready? This may not be good news, but what comes out of you when you're going through hardships is what's in there. And it's in there because you've allowed it to be in there. Do not blame your wife for what you do when she does something. She doesn't put in you what comes out. It's in there because you've allowed it to be in there. Now, the circumstances may have brought it out to the surface, but the reason it's there is because it's there. You with me? And so he's saying when we go through hardships, we are called to bless. So why don't we respond that way? Because that's what's in us. And you know, when you see that, you need to be more offended by that than what someone else has done to you. Because the only audience that matters in the end is not the audience between you and I. It's the audience between myself and God. That when I stand in His presence, He's not worried about the sin that you've caused me. Rather, what He's saying is, Jason, look at the grace and the forgiveness that I've given to you. Look at the patience that I've exercised towards you. Look at the love that I've poured out from the cross for you. Why are you so focused on what they've done to you? Notice the goodness that I've poured out to you. That His grace has to be sufficient. And the only way it's sufficient is you have to look to Him. And so He's going to tell us that when we go through hardships, you've got to ask the question, you know, what am I trusting in? I'll tell you, part of what you're trusting in will come out in what you defend. You want to know what you're trusting in? Well, let me ask this. When you're cornered, what do you defend? You notice verse 15? Always be prepared to give an answer. Why is he putting... That verse sounds very evangelistic, but actually what he's saying is when you're going through suffering, live such a good life that people ask, what? Really? Live such a good life. When you're going through suffering and hardship, live such a good life that it causes people to say, what is your hope? Because notice he doesn't say, listen, he doesn't say have an answer for every question. Please stop that. Don't have an answer for every... You don't have to. What does he say you need an answer for? Your hope. What is the hope that's sustaining you right now? That's all he says you need to have an answer for. You don't need to describe the flood and paleontology and all that stuff and you know get all that together. Was it six days? Was it a million years? I don't know. You don't need an answer for that. That doesn't mean we don't pursue that. But what is going to change people is not your arguments, but your hope. 
When you go through challenges and suffering life, what changes you isn't your arguments, it's your hope. You know, in 1 John, there's this amazing, amazing verse that's always puzzled me. It says that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone, listen, everyone who hopes in this purifies himself as He is pure. He says that when Jesus appears, we, we shall be like Him. And go, go check this out. I can't remember which chapter verse. It just came to me. When we see Him, we'll be as He is, meaning we'll be in the very likeness of Christ. But everyone who hopes in this purifies himself as He is pure. What's the secret to purity, to, to a renewed life? It's what you hope in. Well, church, what are we hoping in? in? In our marriages, what do we hope for? Just to get the argument right? Or to get Jesus in the center of our marriage? Or in the church, what are we hoping for? What do we want for each other and for ourselves? What we hope in shows up in how we live. And so he's saying we need a community that is surrounded by the gospel. We need a heart that's captivated by Jesus because when you go through hardships, the things you're trusting in will come to the surface and the things that you're defending will be revealed, what you hope in. So let me just ask, how are you doing? In the challenges and the struggles of life, what are you trying to defend? Are you defending yourself? You know, I love Martin Luther. He's one of my great heroes uh, but he had a foul mouth. Just because someone loves the Lord doesn't mean they're sanctified, they're perfect. He had a foul, foul language. He was like a cursing pastor if that could exist. But he says, when the devil throws your sin in your face, you say to the devil, what of it? For I have one, Jesus Christ, who has died for me and right now is interceding for me at the right hand of the Father. That when someone throws your sin in your face, you say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I do deserve condemnation, but realize, the reason I'm not condemned is Jesus was condemned in my place. And if He was condemned in my place, then I got what Jesus got, the free gift of salvation through grace in Jesus Christ. And now I'm a child of God, not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done. And so see, that's where He goes. As we kind of conclude in verses, uh, I think it's 18 and following, He says, Christ died for sins. See, where do you get the energy for this? We're going to experience it this morning at the communion table. Christ died for sins. Now, now, He died once for all, meaning your sins are dead. They don't define you. You're not defined by what you do. Even if what you did was yesterday, that doesn't define you. What defines you is Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for, who am I? The unrighteous. To do what? To bring me to God. Jesus came to bring me to God, to put my hope in God. He was put to death in the body, but just like us, He was made alive by the Spirit. The reason we are alive today is because the Spirit of Christ has come in and caused us to come awake to God. And so the question as we apply this today, as we experience and share communion, is to simply say, Lord, what am I putting my hope in? As I go through suffering and hardship, what am I turning to to find hope. Some of us are going to comfort. Now, today it just may be a bowl of ice cream, right? Rocky Road. Ga not a bowl. I mean, when you're really suffering, you need the gallon, right? haagen that's good stuff. Sometimes it's, it's worse than that. It's things like pornography. You know, pornography affects the church. It's destroying the church. And the reason I say it's destroying the church, listen, um, 
and I know I'm not just speaking to men on this, um, it's destroying the church because when you're addicted to something like that, what's happening is the body of Christ is being paralyzed. And there are gifts and talents and passions that God's given you that you cannot exercise because you're walking in guilt and shame. The greatest thing you can do is just say, you know, to confess that to someone and say, that's not my hope. It's my struggle. And that's okay. It's okay to struggle with something. I want you to know at Bergen Park, it's okay to struggle with sin. We expect you to. We don't expect perfection. But to not confess and say, you know, for my family, for my life, I need a greater hope than that. Because you know that's a hope that will not sustain you. So what are you hoping in? Or what are you looking to? And then just simply, you know, the, the secret, the beauty of the Christian life is we don't have to change our life. We just have to draw close to the one who can change us, which means repentance and faith. That's all it is. That's the Christian life. It's repentance and faith. Saying, Father, forgive me. I put my hope in this, and I'm putting my hope in this, and I'm putting my hope in this. I need a hope in you today. And I thank you that today is the day of salvation. And maybe not just the first time of trusting in Christ, the day of salvation to say, hey, I'm going to turn from my ways, I'm going to trust in your ways. And Lord, would you put around me the people that are necessary to lead me to living a life as a disciple of Jesus and not just as a disciple of my desires. Hey, today we're going to celebrate communion. And let me say to you, this table, the communion table is open to you. If you've received Jesus Christ, which simply means to believe. It doesn't mean to change your life, but to receive the free gift of that good news, of grace, that God through grace in Jesus Christ has paid for my debt. That I do not walk in shame because I'm not defined by what I do. Rather, I walk in power, the power of God's love through Jesus Christ, knowing that He has forgiven me. Because as far as east is from west, so I have separated your sin from you. And so we confess as we come to the communion table, Father, I want to put my hope in you. And maybe as you come, before you come today, it's searching your heart and just saying, God, what am I putting my, my hope in? What do I need to let go of? And then would you not just leave it there? The, the thing I'd ask you, the next step of faith for you maybe is you need to share that with someone. You need to share where you're struggling. It doesn't matter the age that you're at. We're all sinners that are struggling. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay because in doing that, if we're a part of a family, you're hurting each other. And we wonder, why isn't the church the church? Because we're not confessing what we need to confess. We're not trusting and hoping in what we need to hope in. It's not because we're not perfect. You're not supposed to be. That's great news. You're not supposed to be perfect. He is perfect. And we run to the one who can perfect us, but we do that with humility and honesty, not being ashamed, but rather trusting that in Christ we have been made whole. So at this time, I want to invite those forward that are going to serve communion. And, and this is a, a full house today. So let me say, um, you know, just take your time where you are. Um, what we do is we celebrate communion through intention. And so when you come forward, someone will present the bread and say, this is Christ's body, which is broken for you. And then they'll present the cup and you can dip that bread in the cup and they'll say, this is Christ's blood that was shed for you. But do this, church, let's do this in remembrance of Him. Confessing that we need Him and then leaving from this place saying, Father, I want to walk with You. I want people in my life that are going to point me to You and not just to what I want, not just to what I want to hear, but are going to love me so that I might love You more. Let me pray for us. And would you guys come forward?
Father, I thank you for the grace. Um, Lord, I just thank you for that your grace is sufficient and you're not surprised by weakness. You're not surprised. I know we are sometimes. We, we deceive ourselves. Oh, I can't believe I did this. Look at where I found myself. But Lord, it doesn't surprise you. You see the seeds of deceit in our own heart that we want to ignore the things that right now uh, you want to address. And sometimes, Father, forgive us because we think that conviction we have, we think it comes from us. And the more we say no to God, the more our heart grows cold. And because it grows cold, it becomes useless in families and in community and to us. And so, Father, awaken in Jesus' name our heart. Breathe once again on the bones that are dry and dead and breathe into us the breath of life through repentance, just acknowledging, Father, this is who you are. You are good. And you've been good to us. And Lord, we don't want to be good to prove ourselves, but rather to be good because your goodness is in us. And we want to express that to you by loving you with our whole heart and loving others as we love ourselves. So Father, guide us in that truth as we celebrate communion today. In Jesus' name, amen.